there were lots of versions, none of which were particularly successful, we thought. And then um, we hired Vincent Ward, we saw The Navigator. And when he came in and talked about it, it was definitely different. This was going to be a whole new, you know, notion of alien. The history of film is full of ghosts. Ghosts of stories that never got made because they were too ambitious or too expensive or too weird, too new, too old, too different. In the late 1960s, Stanley Kubrick poured all of his considerable talent and stamina into a nearly 150-page treatment for a film on Napoleon. It would have called for 30,000 extras, and it would have cost more than the gross domestic product of some small nations. But he was coming right off the heels of the Oscar-winning 2001 A Space Odyssey, and he was the hot young talent in Hollywood. So, MGM tried to make the financials work, but they couldn't, and ultimately they passed. And then United Artists decided to explore the project, but then they got spooked when Rod Steger's Waterloo bombed at the box office. Ultimately, Kubrick was unwilling to compromise his vision or his budget, and the project evaporated into the musty closets of history. In the mid-90s, Superman was everywhere, thanks largely to the infamous Death of Superman comics arc. Seeking to capitalize on this zeitgeist moment, Warner Brothers hired Kevin Smith to write a screenplay. The story, which he titled Superman Lives, looked to be a surefire hit. At Smith's suggestion, the studio hired Tim Burton to direct the project, and to play their leading man, the studio signed none other than Nicolas Cage. Things were looking good for a release timed with the 60th anniversary of Superman's first comic appearance, and then everything fell apart. A series of script rewrites ruined the cohesion of the original story. Burton, feeling like the project was stagnating, moved on to direct Sleepy Hollow. The script went through another two rewrites, and eventually the anniversary passed, and everyone just sort of moved on. But my favorite unfilmed script my favorite Hollywood ghost is a fantastical tale that a New Zealand director dreamt into life on an overseas flight about a vast wooden satellite filled with monks and candles and nightmares. This is the story of Vincent Ward and John Fasano's Alien 3. Things were not looking good for the third franchise installment by the late 1980s. The production had just lost its director, Rennie Harlan, who would go on to direct Die Hard 2. The Gibson days were long gone, and the bones of those early scripts were settling into the cold earth. But then, David Geiler happened to see a crazy feature out of New Zealand called The Navigator, an odyssey across time. It was about a band of 14th century villagers seeking to escape the Black Death, and it featured a hell of a plot twist, and it had gotten a five-minute standing ovation at the 1988 Cannes Film Festival. Geiler, thinking he might have just found Hollywood's next big thing, got in touch with a filmmaker, a New Zealander named Vincent Ward. 
Ward had spent much of his time post-Navigator on a new film called Map of the Human Heart. Things had not been going well. As he told The Independent in a 1993 interview, quote, At the time, I was working on Map with my co-writer. I was broke. I'd spent a lot of money on going to the Arctic and interviewing anthropologists and dam-buster bomber pilots, and we were driving each other crazy. I was living in this basement in Australia. And then the phone call came, and I turned it down. But then they rang me back and said, We'll send you the script anyway. I read it. I said no again. And then they rang me back a third time and said, You can change the script if you like. Well, by this time, that basement was driving me crazy, so I said yes just to get out. End quote. The script he's referring to, of course, was David Toohey's prison story as featured in our previous episode by Jamie. So, Ward got on a plane to Los Angeles, and he started thinking about what a new alien film could look like. He'd been immersed in medieval imagery for the previous few years, having wrapped Navigator and also written a book on the same time period called Edge of the Earth. And somewhere over the Pacific, these aesthetics began to merge with his understanding of the elements that had made the previous two alien films so successful, and an idea began to take shape. By the time he landed at LAX, he had a story. With the help of John Fasano, an accomplished screenwriter and, among other things, weapons expert, that story became a script they called simply Alien 3. And here is the story. It begins inside a monastic glassworks. Light is playing off dark walls, fire from molten liquid. By all appearances, it's the Middle Ages. Brother John, a clear corollary to the character we'd eventually come to know as Clemens, is tending to the wounds of an injured monk. A monk named Brother Kyle sings a mocking song about how Brother John can always be counted on to administer aid to others, but can't fix his own problems. Brother John emerges early on as the protagonist. He makes his way to the enormous library with his dog, Matthias. The abbot, a character who would eventually transform into Superintendent Andrews, allows Brother John to enter the library because he's using that knowledge he acquires to keep the population of monks healthy, and the official abbey physician, Father Anselm, had recently died. Brother John and Matthias the dog leave the library and take a journey through the abbey. We are then treated to a series of dramatic reveals as the true nature of this wooden world comes to light. From the script. The door has opened onto the surface of a planetoid, the curving horizon broken only by the very top of the Abbey Bell Tower poking through the levels below. Smoke curls from vents set into the surface. Sunken areas of the planet's surface are seas. This is Archeon, a man-made orbiter, a shell of lightweight foamed steel five miles in diameter, constructed by the company on special order, with the habitable levels within finished in whatever material suits its end user. John and Matthias stop for a while on the exterior of this enormous satellite. They watch the cosmos by the shore of an artificial lake on the planetoid's surface, and then this monk and his dog see something strange in the sky. There is a star that stands out. It's brighter than the others, and it's moving quickly enough to be dragging a slight tail behind it, almost like a comet. And it appears to be moving towards them. Other monks come out to watch the strange star, 
Over the course of a few days, 300 monks have come out to rim the lake with Brother John and Matthias. The comet is getting closer. It's surrounded with fire. It's going to land on their floating abbey. The comet smashes into the lake. Brother John hops into a small boat and furiously paddles out to see what it is. What he finds is an EEV, something unlike anything he's ever seen before. The monks, you see, are Luddites. They have shunned all forms of modern technology. It might as well have been a dragon landing in a medieval fortress. In some ways, it is. Brother John pries open the hatch and climbs in. He finds a complete mess of blood and torn fabrics and the head of a child's doll. He also finds two cryotubes. One is destroyed, and one contains Ripley, who was alive. Now on the side here, the idea of killing Hicks and Newt at the beginning of the film, which is arguably the most controversial and hotly debated aspect of Alien 3 as we eventually received it, originated here in Ward's script. It was his idea. He wanted to clear away the baggage of the previous films, including Newt, whom he found, quote, annoying, and start afresh. He was still very interested in the ideas of parental bonds, as we'll see later in the story, but he wanted to explore those ideas from new angles, and he felt that killing Newton Hicks off right at the beginning would set the story up to start with a clean slate. Anyway, back to our story. So the monks are completely dumbfounded by this technology. It's, it's completely alien to them. They manage to gather themselves together enough to pull Ripley out of the wreckage, but not before Brother John finds a distress message Ripley had left before entering cryosleep. She says that the Sulaco was completely overrun with xenomorphs, prompting her to find an escape vehicle for herself and Newt. Hicks and Bishop, she says, were killed in the Xeno struggle. We are then treated to another early nightmare sequence, a la Aliens. Ripley is laying in bed recuperating. Brother John is in the room with her, keeping watch. Without warning, a xenomorph appears. It caresses her abdomen, cocking its head like a dog. Ripley screams, and then realizes it was all just a terrible dream. Eventually, she recovers enough to make some sense of her surroundings. Unfortunately for Ripley, the surroundings themselves make very little sense. She sees vast fields filled with monks working the land. She sees fishermen piloting small vessels across tiny lakes. She sees teams of workers building cottages out of wood and nails. But then she also sees something else. Enormous scaffolding. And then she realizes that the monks on top of it are painting the sky. And suddenly she knows that this whole world is inside the planetoid. The curved ceiling, which has enormous windows to let natural light inside, is actually the underside of the interior of the planetoid. The abbot then appears, followed by Brother John, and he quickly brings us up to speed. From the script, he says, quote, This is the Minorite Abbey within the man-made orbiter Archeon. End quote. Ripley asks for a radio, and the abbot replies that they have no radios, as they are, quote, a monastic order that has renounced all modern technology. We live the old way, the pure way, end quote. Ripley inquires about Newt, only to find out she hadn't survived the crash. Ripley had been the only living thing found on the ship. Ripley then realizes that she must have brought a xenomorph with her. 
She panics, grabbing the monk's cassock, and she tells him she's brought a monster with her and it's been running free since she crash-landed nearly two days earlier. The monk looks at her according to performance notes in the script, quote, the way you'd look at that guy on the corner of Santa Monica and Third who's babbling about Judgment Day, end quote. She calms herself down, explaining that she'd been on a mission to LV-426 with a platoon of colonial marines. She says they left Earth six months to a year ago. The abbot tells her this is impossible, and then he lays out the background of where and, somewhat, when they are. From the script, quote, When we left Earth 70 years ago, it was on the brink of a new dark age. Technology was on the verge of destroying the planet's environment. A computer virus was threatening to wipe away all recorded knowledge. There didn't seem to be any way it could be averted. In the almost 40 years since we were towed out here in hypersleep, the news that came with occasional supply ships only got worse. Finally, the ships stopped coming. We had to resign ourselves to the fact that the worst had come to pass and the Earth no longer existed. Ripley decides that she's getting nowhere with this insane conversation, and she tries to refocus the abbot on the danger a xenomorph would pose to the men in this colony. He dismisses her as having a, quote, troubled mind, and leaves her in a locked room patrolled by two burly monks. No one, including Brother John, whose room this actually is, is allowed to enter. Later on that night, a frantic monk wakes Brother John, who had been sleeping in the library, and tells him that one of his sheep, Sandy, is sick. Brother John grabs his medical kit and heads to the barn. Sandy is convulsing uncontrollably. Horrified, the two monks watch helplessly as an infant alien explodes out of the sheep. Now here we get a trope which will show up in the runner of Fincher's Alien 3 and more extensively in the aborted Operation Aliens cartoon. The alien, quote, shows the characteristics of the animal in which it has gestated, end quote. The creature has an elongated xenomorph head, but it's also covered in downy wool. It walks on all fours, and it has black, glass-like eyes. Sandy's owner, hysterical, attacks the creature with a pitchfork. A fire breaks out after acid blood sprays onto dry straw, and the barn is quickly engulfed in flame. The monk pushes the alien deeper into the fire with his pitchfork, and it's consumed. It dies with a half-sheep, half-xenomorphic wail. We then cut to a tribunal. The abbot and his governance team are charging Ripley with bringing, quote, evil to Archeon. She uses this opportunity to once again attempt to warn the gathered assembly of the true extent of the danger, but she's quickly shut up and sentenced to solitary imprisonment. The monks think she is aiding the devil and lying to them. She's locked in a cell deep in the bowels of Archeon. Brother John, believing Ripley is worth listening to, uses a secret passage to get to her at the bottom of the planet. We then get one of the great unfilmed shock scenes in the whole alien saga. The abbot and an unnamed member of his tribunal are using the stalls in a bathroom shortly after the trial lets out. Suddenly an alien, it's unclear where exactly this particular one came from, grabs the tribunal member through a hole in the ground 
and drags him under the floor. The plumbing, the sinks, the toilets, etc., all emit an eruption of gore and blood as the monk is slaughtered. Meanwhile, as Brother John and Matthias are still making their way to the subterranean cells, Ripley learns she's not alone. There's an android named Anthony on the other side of the wall, and they're able to converse through a hole. And as with everything in this script, there is more to Anthony than one might initially think. Brother John finds them, and the three of them escape into the dark corridors. We're then treated to another series of cascading revelations. Anthony was a spy who had been planted on the colony by the company. Anthony tells them what the true nature of Archeon is. It's not a monastic paradise. It's a prison for countercultural exiles. It turns out that the Earth had been crippled by that computer virus the Abbott had mentioned, which was called the New Plague. Data was being erased on a global scale, and an emergent Luddite-like movement began to emerge. The monks on Archeon had started as members of that movement and camped on a retreat on Earth. Thousands began to join their cause, and the company, realizing that the mass abandonment of worldly possessions would be bad for business, used their control of world government to sentence the monks to expulsion for political dissidents. They built Archeon and peopled it with 10,000 members of the order. It was initially kept running by regular supply ship visits, but they eventually stopped. At this point, Anthony revealed his true nature and was banished to the bowels of the wooden world. We also learn more about Archeon itself. It's split into three main sections, a heaven on top, a sea in the middle, and then a hell where Ripley and Anthony had been held. Anthony tells him that there's also a technology room where the life-sustaining elements of the satellite are housed. They decide to head there, thinking it might be their best bet for figuring out how to deal with the xenomorph problem. And then Ripley feels something moving in her chest for the first time. The action then shifts back immediately to the heaven setting, which has become one of the most vivid depictions of hell I have ever read about. We see the Abbot. He is completely covered in blood. The world is on fire. Fields of wheat are ablaze, and monks are frantically trying to escape the conflagration. Within one of the burning fields, we see the alien. It has adapted the ability to camouflage with its surroundings, and it attacks the monks with astonishing ferocity, slicing them apart like, quote, a scythe through wheat. As the blood-drenched abbot shivers in terror, the xenomorph emerges from the wheat field. It's nine feet tall, and it's colored like golden straw. We cut back to our quartet, who are still making their way to the technology room. Ripley is beginning to think that the alien on board the EEV somehow impregnated her with an embryo. Anthony has a vision of Boshian demons. It's the beginning of his programming regurgitating itself, because he is old and he's afflicted, and he's a shadow of what he once was. They come across the abbot, who somehow has survived the wheat field, and he leads them to the technology room, which is completely covered in bear traps. They trigger the traps with wood to make their way to the entrance and open the door to the technology room, and then suddenly an alien leaps out. Anthony gets caught in a bear trap, and the alien sprays acid over him from its mouth. They manage to free Anthony and gain access to the technology room, locking the alien outside. And here, we get another remarkable reveal. 
The technology room is full of windmills, enormous windmills, and nothing else. No electronics, no circuitry. The only things keeping the colony alive, it turns out, are plants and wind. It's exactly as primitive as it appears to be. The planetoid, you see, had been designed by the company to be a slow death trap. The monks would slowly suffocate as the atmosphere decayed over years and years because the available oxygen would be depleted. And nothing eats oxygen quite like fire. And their small wooden world was burning. Suddenly, the abbot starts acting like he's having a seizure. Gibberish is exploding out of his mouth, and then his head erupts. And atop this headless monk is a headburster, and it's pissed off. It grabs the abbot's exposed spinal cord and guides his headless body towards Ripley, who smashes it across the room with a staff Anthony had been carrying. It escapes into the corridors. Ripley realizes that she has certainly been impregnated but she decides not to tell her companions, and she also realizes that their only way out of this nightmare is to find her EEV. Anthony, who at this point between the acid and the programming breakdown has suffered tremendous damage, stays behind. Ripley, Brother John, and Matthias the dog make for the EEV, and Anthony is destroyed once and for all by the xenomorph after they've left. They make it to the library, but then they get caught by the enraged alien. They fight the creature, inadvertently starting another acid fire. This time, the fire eats through the wooden floor of the library and reveals the molten ocean of the glassworks below. Ripley, Brother John, and Matthias manage to avoid falling into the liquid glass, but the xenomorph isn't so lucky. Just like Fincher's Alien 3, though, the creature survives the heat and leaps out to attack our protagonists. Ripley, in a moment of genius, opens a dump tank, and the alien is covered in cold water. It explodes in a moment of thermal trauma. They realize all of the dead monks are going to be hatching bursters soon, so they need to hurry. Ripley decides to tell Brother John the dark truth. She herself is impregnated with an alien embryo. He decides to perform an exorcism on her, forcing the alien out by straddling her body and pounding her chest. He covers her mouth with his, a sort of fatal kiss, and the alien embryo passes through into his body. He tells Matthias, his dog, to stay with Ripley, and he walks back into the flaming abbey. He is burned to death, taking the monster with him. Ripley and Matthias make it to the EEV and pilot it off the surface of the planetoid. She puts the dog into cryosleep. She spots a note Brother John had written on the floor. In the note, which is a sort of a final will and testament, he says he believes Ripley was right about there still being an Earth to go home to. Ripley reflects in a voiceover that regardless of whether the EEV makes it home, she's found some measure of peace. Then the screen goes black, the credits roll, and we get a crazy little bonus line. A teenager, quote, in the back of the movie theater, shouts, It's in the dog!
So, what happened? Right away, there were complaints about the wooden planet. From a technical standpoint, it would have been extremely difficult to produce, but it also presented some nearly unanswerable, or at least very difficult to explain, scientific questions, like how could an artificial planetoid that's only a few miles from top to bottom sustain a six-foot-tall atmosphere that would allow monks to spend days lying by a surface lake? I mean, how could a closed system sustain that much life for that long with no life support technology? And even though Ward clarified in multiple places that the planetoid itself wasn't made of wood, it was only clad in it, it was still a constant source of confusion on the set. As David Geiler reflected, It was the, the, This whole thing we went back and forth on the wooden planet and the monks was that we said, look, fine, we, we like the wooden planet. We'd all like to have the wooden planet. Just tell me how it got there and, and what it's doing there and why it doesn't rot it away and, what's, you know, and what is it doing in space, you know. And uh, how is it built? And you know, how are they sustaining it? And you know all that stuff. And, um, and nobody could ever find any convincing. Any the more you went into it, the more you just said, "Oh, never mind." <laughs> there were also, as we'll explore momentarily, some pretty big problems with the script that needed to be addressed. One of the most glaring issues was Ripley's dialogue, which Sigourney Weaver felt was entirely wrong for the character. The tricky thing about writing a character like like Ripley is that one of the first instincts is to write her like some kind of butch gym instructor, you know, all right, people, let's get out of here. And she's really, I think, a lot cooler than that. And it wasn't just the dialogue. The whole character feels off. She says virtually nothing for the first 32 pages of the script that isn't some variation on, you guys are so screwed right now, but you aren't listening to me. I mean, she's right. And she should be warning them, but there are under a hundred pages total in this treatment, and she spends nearly half of them just yelling about how everyone's an idiot, and they should be listening to what she's warning them about. Now, in the Fincher script, she goes through the same basic sequence of events, the crash landing, being ignored even though she's correct, bonding with a man who administers medical care, realizing she's carrying an embryo, and bringing about a series of events that result in the embryo being destroyed, but she's given a lot more nuance. The dialogue feels like it was written for that character played by that actress, but in the Ward Fasano script, it does eventually get there, especially as she and Brother John become closer, but the overall impression is that the character isn't accurate. Anyway, to make a long story short, it became quickly apparent to everybody involved that this was not going to work out. The studio was already under a huge amount of budgetary and temporal pressure to get this project moving, and Ward was unwilling to sacrifice his control of his vision in service of the Hollywood studio system. By the time they got into pre-production in England, things began to fall apart once and for all. Geiler, again. David and I and this writer went to London, and we got a draft of the script, and everybody walked off and said they weren't going to do it. By now, we were building sets, and there had been a considerable amount of money invested in it. Indeed, entire sections of the wooden planetoid, including portions of the Abbey, had already been constructed. And because Brandywine Fox et al. were already feeling the pressure of these constant rewrites and staffing changes, and because they'd already committed considerable financial resources to the project by this point, they decided to just keep much of what had been built. And that's why, if you look closely while watching the Fincher film, you'll occasionally see Gothic arches and church accoutrements lining the prison sets. And now... Most of the creative staff, by this point, were assembled in London, and they were actively at work on a film that was, once again, without a director or a creative direction. As Alec Gillis of ADI reflected, 
the production essentially shut down while the script was being finished. So we were kind of there, you know. What do we work on? What do we do? Of course, what they did was rewrite Ward's script by cobbling together ideas from other script proposals like Tui's, fixing the dialogue, finding David Fincher, having him modify the script that they had Frankensteined into being, and making the theatrical cut of Alien 3 under extraordinarily stressful production conditions. But before I get into all the things I love about Ward's vision for the third Alien film, let me be clear. Ward and Fasano's Alien 3 is a complete work of genius that, had it gone into production with the script undergoing no further rewrites, would have been a genuinely awful Alien film. Aside from the obvious problems with Ripley's dialogue, there are some pretty glaring issues. For one thing, it's unclear how the egg ended up on the Sulaco, a pretty major omission from the Fincher film as well. But it's also not clear where the xenomorphs on the planetoid came from, the sheepomorph was killed in the barn fire, and within a very short span of time, a nine-foot-tall chameleon alien is towering over the monks. And there's also problems with the film's treatment of androids. Some of these are expositionally penciled over with some facile explanations, like Anthony being a different generation of synthetic, but the problems are more fundamental than that. Why is he old? Why is he senile? Why does he get mortally wounded by the acid blood? Why is he having nightmares? And similar to the problems with Ripley's character, the treatment of the xenomorph itself is complicated, bordering on inaccurate. It's remarked at least three or four times that the creature seems to be having a vendetta against Ripley. Its purpose, it seems, isn't to set up a viable hive, considering it's spraying everything in acid and burning the whole planetoid to the ground. It's also making little to no effort to cocoon any living hosts, acting more like a murderous psychopath than a drone or a world-building member of any colony. And the headburster device, which is completely without precedent elsewhere in any alien material, seems like a deus ex machina designed to explain how this bloodthirsty serial-killing xenomorph could also be impregnating hosts. But then again, it's never explained how any of this happens. And, although there are hundreds of monks on Archeon, only a handful of them have speaking parts. Aside from Brother John and the Abbot, Brother Kyle has a few lines... And they're actually very memorable, suggesting Kyle grew eventually into the beloved Dylan character in the Fincher film. There are a couple of brief interjections from characters with names like Bald Monk and Burly Monk 2. But other than that, there's very little development of these minor characters. And while that's certainly an issue in the Fincher film as well, the Alien 3 we ended up with at least brings out characters like Morse, Jude, 85, etc. So, yeah, if the script as it was was translated directly into a movie it would have been sort of a mess. But if things had been different, if the studio hadn't been rushing to try to accommodate an unreasonable production timetable because the project had stalled out so many times, they could have easily gone back and rewritten the problematic sections. Things would have been smoothed over. Inconsistencies would have been fixed. Dialogue would have been cleaned up. And we could have ended up with one of the most fascinating, idiosyncratic, poetic science fiction movies of the modern era. The first and most unmissable strength of the Ward story is the setting. There's simply nothing else like it in the history of film, this huge world within a world, an ancient paradise hidden in a hyper-futuristic planetoid, a vessel from the future containing our past, a refuge from technology created by technology so advanced that we can't even imagine how it could possibly work. I have no idea how they could have pulled it off. The production art is truly jaw-dropping. But that's why we make science fiction films in the first place, right? to visualize the impossible. We come up with solutions, and if Ward had been given time, 
patience, and bandwidth to work on the technical difficulties Archeon would have no doubt presented, I have no doubt that he could have figured it out. Ward's story also contributes meaningfully to the mythology of the Xenomorph. By doubling down on this idea of an elemental ancient evil, a proto-devil, Ward is deepening the mystery and terror of the creature in the wake of Cameron's aliens, which, though a masterpiece, demystified the beast somewhat by having scores of them slaughtered by pulse rifles. Some of this devil mythology survived into Fincher's film, and it's some of that film's most effective dialogue. It also has made its way into other arms of the expanded universe, most notably, perhaps, in the wonderful, Mignola-illustrated Alien's Salvation. Ward has a scene where Brother John is reading ancient manuscripts on evil by candlelight. Lucifer, Shaitan, Achriman, Asmodeus, Satan, works by Lichtenstein, Gruenwald, Bosch. It's wonderfully evocative imagery, and it serves to deepen and broaden the elemental mystery at the heart of this mysterious saga. There are also some truly astounding set pieces. I'll highlight two of them for you, but I urge you to look up the full script and read it yourself. There are copies archived in numerous places on the internet, and I will link to at least one of them in the show notes for this episode on perfectorganism.com. The first that I want to highlight for you is the insane beauty of the xenomorph attacking the monks shortly before our core group makes it to their technology room. Picture the scene. A vast expanse of wheat, an ocean of it, on fire. A terrifying golden xenomorph seen from a high-angle shot, parting the corn in flames like a shark in the ocean, emerging to slice the monks in half like so much chaff. A bloody abbot trembling in the presence of the ultimate evil. A cavernous chamber filled with screams and smoke and blood and terror. The second is a little more ridiculous, but it's also pretty awesome in its own right, so I will just go ahead and read it for you. Interior, Abbey Lavatory, Night. An enormous room, over a football field in length, consisting of at least a hundred open toilet stalls facing a hundred wall-mounted sinks. Their condition, though, bespeaks the awful truth. The stalls furthest away from us are cobwebbed. Some have had the side walls stripped for firewood. Of the original hundred sinks, maybe twenty are still functional, a facility created for a much larger number of colonists than there are left. Moving down the row of stalls, chest high, thank you, <laughs> past a few empty stalls and several grimacing faces, the second to last being the abbot. Abbot, cold tonight. Continuing to the last bald tribunal member, bald tribunal member, gets colder every night. Abbot, and every day, never this bad. Taking so much wood out of the structure, the surface wind blows right through the colony, right under the floor. The bald tribunal member shivers as a cold breeze runs along the waste trough under the floor and chills the air in his bowl. The bald tribunal member. Right up your bloody backside. Nights like this make me miss plumbing. Ah! He feels a tugging at his bowels. It's not piles. A beat. The bald tribunal monk screams as something grabs him from below. Something snakes up his rectum and hooks into his lower intestine. He convulses in spasms of agony. There is a terrible ripping sound as the bald tribunal monk is pulled violently down out of frame. The skinny monk, washing his hands, sees all of this happen, and he loses control of his bodily functions as blood sprays from the faucet. 
Other monks in their stalls, as the toilets reject a torrent of gore, blood and viscera spraying the walls, converting the abbey into an abattoir. And I should mention, there's a note in the middle of this section, which I've kind of skipped through some parts of. There's a note that says, The left half of the following five pages is cut off. I have completed the text to the best of my ability. <laughs> so I think, I'm, I'm assuming that's John Fasano leaving a note about how some pages have been just missed in this scan that we have. And I think it just says so much about the condition of this whole thing as they were trying to shoot it, or trying to get it into pre-production, how it was still being changed and modified and it was not ready to go yet. So that's part of why I think this is an earlier draft than perhaps uh, history has led us to believe. Indeed, when asked to give her thoughts on the Ward script years later, Weaver recalled, I think the alien attacked one of the monks as he was sitting on the toilet or something. Sort of every person's nightmare if they're going to think about alien. I thought it had a good setting. The monastery and space thing was cool, I thought. Another unmissable aspect of the Ward story is the preoccupation with dreams. From the very beginning, we, the audience, feel almost like we are dreaming. It starts, remember, with an ancient glassworks. So we're sitting in a theater with Alien 3 on the marquee, and we're watching a film about medieval monks. And even as the true nature of Archeon is revealed to us, the whole thing makes less and less sense. It isn't until we're nearly halfway through the story that we find out why there's this wooden world floating in space in the first place. And only then does it make some sort of sense. Otherwise, we feel the way Ripley does as she comes out of her fugue state. What we're seeing is insane. But actual dream sequences pervade the script as well. One of Ripley's first scripted moments is a nightmare that closely resembles, and one would assume eventually gave birth to, one of the more iconic shots in Fincher's film. From the script, The alien stands alongside her bed, extends a six-fingered hand, gently rests it on her stomach, cocks its head like it's listening to something. The implication is clear. Ripley then awakes with a scream, but the idea that there's an alien inside of her never leaves. And the idea that she's somehow being protected from the alien because of her cargo is one of the most poignantly frightening things in Fincher's movie. The genesis of that idea, as well as many others, some of which we'll explore momentarily, is here, in Ward's story. Perhaps the most frightening nightmare sequence occurs later, when Ripley has a vision of being raped by the monster. This plays off many of the most deeply frightening themes cycling through the alien mythos from the very beginning, starting with the implied possibility that Lambert was sexually violated as her screams rang down the Nostromo's claustrophobic hallways. The way it's scripted makes this elusive connection overt. From the script, Ripley begins to panic, senses the alien's presence, looks left, right, up, no alien, looks down. The alien's tail is coming up between her legs. She turns right into its grasp. The useless flamethrower skitters across the floor. She pummels the beast with balled-up fists. The alien spins her, pushes her over across the sleep tube, like it's taking her from behind. Ripley looks down into the sleep tube. Newt is gone. Her doll's head lies in a pool of blood. The alien wraps his arms around Ripley. Thin lips pull back for a kiss. She screams. Even Anthony, the android, is haunted by dream visions. This Morphean quality pervades every aspect of the script, from the setting to the dialogue to the creature, and it gives it 
a uniquely phantasmagoric aspect that I think would have translated extremely well into an alien film. And though the dialogue could use some work, I do think Ward had a fundamental understanding of Ripley's character. I think he understood her arc, and I think he and Sigourney Weaver were actually very closely aligned in some key ways. You have to look at it this way. If Alien 1 was about a novice, and Alien 2 was about a veteran infantrywoman, Alien 3 was about someone older looking back, wondering what mistakes they had made. Here's a woman who missed out on the life of her daughter, who missed out everybody she knows has been killed. Everyone she's ever associated with has met a horrifying death. She is the only survivor. And she comes to feel that in some ways there's something wrong with her. So it's a kind of redemption story. Indeed, a point of contention between Ward and the studio was that Ward felt Ripley had to die at the end of the film. He felt like the arc of her character had brought her to a moment of redemption and finality, and a noble death was the only way to do justice to her. The studio insisted that they needed the franchise to continue with Ripley at the center, which is how they eventually got to Brother John's sacrificial ending, but Ward wasn't happy with it. And luckily, the studio eventually relented and let David Fincher film a version granting Ripley a noble, heroic death. There were two directions I took the story. The first direction... I had uh, Sigourney realizing that the only way that people in this monastery could survive was if she herself killed herself. I had it really simple, which was there was a wheat field in front of this cathedral inside this huge dome space, and there's a fire in the wheat field, and she just walks very quietly into the fire, and you just see her back walking away from us, and that would have been the end of the movie. The studio really liked that, but they wanted the series to continue, so they said, look, can't you find a way to have her survive? So I said, sure. Um, she has this friend who's a monk. There's this ambiguous sort of sexual frisson going on between them. Um, nothing ever happened, in my version. Um, it was all about what could have happened. People made different choices in their lives. And... Um, there's a weird, he goes back to his medieval books, he finds these pictures, he sees exorcisms, they find a way of, you know, both, so it feels like in a scientific way, pushing it out of her body in a weird way before it is time to fully grow and burst through the chest. They get it in time, like an abortion, like an exorcism, whichever way you want to go. But it's sufficiently agile as a creature to go inside him, it must find a host. It must seek warmth straight away. And I had the same ending where he walked into the fire. It might seem like we never saw Ward's story come to life, but that's not entirely true. Fincher's final shooting script is full of it, which is perhaps why Ward received partial story credit. The monks became a religious order of convicts. The wooden world became Fury 161. The glassworks became a lead foundry. Brother John became Clemens, Brother Kyle laid the groundwork for Dylan, and the abbot transformed into Superintendent Andrews. Newt and Hicks are killed off at the beginning, leaving Ripley alone in a hostile environment populated exclusively by male strangers. The environment is antiquated, and there are no weapons. Just as Ripley asks incredulously in Fincher's film if the men have access to fire, she wonders if there's any sort of technology of any kind on Archeon that can be used to fight the alien. 
And just as the dogburster, or oxburster, depending on which version you're watching, inherits traits from its host, the sheepburster in Ward's script is a quadruped covered in downy wool. And when the Xeno is finally destroyed in Ward's script, it is through the rapid temperature shift caused by dumping cold water on a hot exoskeleton, the only difference being Ward's alien leaping from glass versus Fincher's alien leaping from molten lead. And just as Ward suggested the only noble end for Ripley's character was to self-sacrifice in a lake of fire, Fincher's film ends unforgettably with Ripley killing herself and taking the embryo, another Ward element, with her. If the studio hadn't intervened in Ward's original ending, the final five minutes of each film would have been virtually indistinguishable from one another. Sometimes... A dream is so powerful, so strange, so haunting, so unique, so beautiful, that we feel like we never really wake up from it. Sometimes a dream becomes part of our waking life. We wake up in the middle of the night to write down what we've learned before it escapes us, before we wake up too much to retain anything taken back from that semi-mystical realm. Ward's film might never have been made, but it's with us. It's in Fincher's film. It's part of alien fan lore. There are hundreds of concept images floating around the internet, and fans are drawing new ones of their own. We are telling the story over and over again, and something about it is sticking within our collective unconscious. And that's sort of beautiful when you think about it. It's like a dream we all had together. You can't quite touch it, but it's there. And sometimes, if you close your eyes... You might just see a little wooden planetoid on the horizon. And if you listen really closely, you might even hear a scream or two. <laughs>